For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Our text this morning, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, our sermon entitled, In Response to Our Enemies. Paul has unpacked now the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in the first 11 chapters of this book. And then... From the vantage point of those chapters, from the vantage point of the mercies of God, uh, from the vantage point of all that has been done for us through the person and work of his son, he then turns to us, essentially, he turns to us and says, now, this is how you must conduct yourself in light of these truths. This is how you must live in response to these truths. This is how you conduct yourself in the household of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, right? It's only right, it is only reasonable, Paul says, that you present yourself as a living sacrifice to him. Now, verse one, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and rose again. Next, you must stop being pressed into the patterns, the mold of this present evil age, and you must be transformed by, as your mind is renewed, by the word of God, so that you may learn to discern what is that perfect and acceptable will of God, that you may learn to discern the will of God in the circumstances that you face in this life. Verse two, so do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, as you fight against those forces that are arrayed against you, pressing you into the patterns of this world, and as you are progressively transformed, as your mind is washed in his word, you need to understand that you've been given gifts from God and you've been given responsibility by God to employ those gifts for the edification of his church. Don't be haughty with them. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But upon a sober assessment of the gifts that God has given to you, that measure of faith that's been given you by God, use those gifts in service to his church. And while you grow being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And while you serve, employing those gifts for the edification of his body, then love one another sincerely. Love must be without hypocrisy. It's a love that does not compromise the law of God. Verse nine, the hypocrite says, I love you while he's sinning against you. You see, the hypocrite says, I love you while he's sinning against you. An affectionate or familial love that esteems another more highly than yourself. Verse 10, the hypocrite says, I love you while he uses you for his own purposes or ends. It's a love that is zealous and fervent and diligent. Verse 11, because it's love with regard to the one who is himself is love, the one who loved us. It's a love that endures. Verse 12, it's a love that gives. Verse 13, it's a love that even extends to those who would not naturally be the objects of our love. Verse 14, because God loved you when you were an enemy of God by wicked works, then you are to love even your enemies. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. As we arrive this morning then at the conclusion of this chapter in chapter 12, it's been a great chapter, amen. I've learned a lot. It's been a joy to go through this. It's been very edifying, especially in consideration of our you know, recent trials and difficulties. It's been a terrific chapter. And um, so it's a joy to be able to conclude this chapter with you. We'll return to it, I'm sure, again, many times in the future. 
But as we come to the conclusion of this chapter, it's this theme now of loving our enemies that Paul determines to expand a bit further. And as uh, we understood from the grammar of verse 14, when we looked at that text, while you are pursuing love for your neighbor in service of the Lord's church, there will be enemies in pursuit of you. Okay, that is a given, it is expected. As was his concern in verse 14, so also his concern again in verse 17 is how we are going to respond. How are we going to respond to the assaults against us when they come? How are you and I going to respond? While Paul exhorted us to bless those who persecute us or pursue us in verse 14, he expands on that thought now in verse 17 with a more direct statement. And it's a direct statement that prohibits what would be a quote-unquote natural or fleshly response. Paul wants to be direct in his language. Stated positively now, we are to bless, that's verse 14, stated positively, we are to bless those who persecute us, bless and do not curse. Stated negatively now, do not return evil for evil. Do not repay evil for evil. Now notice with me, Paul assumes that we are going to be the targets of evil. That's an assumed fact. John says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It's not a shocking thing, okay? In the words of Jesus from John 15, if you were of the world, then the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, Jesus says, remember, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There's a reason why Jesus calls us to remember that fact. We'll talk about that this morning. So Paul assumes we're going to be the targets of all kinds, all manner of evil against us. But aside from the kind of targeted persecution we see promised to the people of God on the pages of the New Testament, we also live in a fallen world, don't we? We live in a fallen world where sinful people do sinful things and you are going to be acted upon with evil. How are you going to respond to that? You're going to endure cheats and liars, slanderers and gossips, right? lion, tigers and bears, oh my, <laughs> malefactors who intend harm to you, to you, your reputation, your livelihood, your family, you're going to encounter malicious malefactors. Might be someone at work who just doesn't like you or doesn't like you because of your testimony as a Christian. Might be someone in your own house who doesn't like you. <laughs> it might be an isolated incident where you feel the pain of an injustice done to you by a malicious gossip or a self-interested liar or a envious, fair-weather, so-called friend, or, or you might become the target of a more coordinated attack. You may become the target of repeated, repeated attacks. Psalm 22, where, where dogs surround you, where the congregation of the wicked enclose you. So whether it's do your stand for righteousness, or it's do the fact that we live in an evil world, whether it's isolated or coordinated, whether it's a one-off or a repeated occurrence, you will be called upon to endure evil at the hands of others. You are going to be called upon to endure 
For the sake of Jesus Christ, as a testimony to his name, you're going to be called to endure evil at the hands of others. How are you and I going to respond? That's the concern of Paul in our text. How are you going to respond? I believe the Bible teaches an ultimate cause for the evil that we're going to face in this age. There's an ultimate cause for all of it. We have evil that comes out of our flesh, our three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? But there's an ultimate cause for all of this evil that we face in this age. Ultimately, our battle is not with flesh and blood. And we see that ultimate cause exposed several places in the Bible, but in consideration of a text we're studying on Sunday afternoons together, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 comes after several cycles in this great letter to the church. Things have been building up to Revelation chapter 12, and it's been building up with regard to the persecution of the church. The concern of the Lord Jesus Christ as he walks in the midst of the lampstands is a persevering witness, a persevering, worshiping witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the concern of the Lord in the book of Revelation. We need to maintain his worship. We need to maintain his witness in a world that hates the message of the gospel, okay? Think with me now in Revelation 12. The church at Ephesus, Revelation 2, forced to deal with those who are evil. They persevered with long-suffering patience, laboring for the sake of his name. They're commended for that. The church at Smyrna, chapter 2, was being attacked by the devil and attacked by the Jews. A member of the church in Pergamos was martyred. He was killed. They were being assaulted by false teachers. The church at Thyatira was being attacked by a Jezebel from within the church. The church at Sardis had essentially given up the fight altogether. They'd grown weary under the fight. There were few there left who would take a stand for righteousness. The church at Philadelphia, again, persecuted by the Jews. The church at Laodicea, overcome by apathy in the face of all that persecution. In Revelation chapter 9... A demon horde is unleashed upon the earth. In Revelation 11, God's witnesses, God's witnesses overcome by this wicked world and killed their dead bodies lying in the streets. The world gloats over them, making merry, giving gifts to one another. This is the story of the church in our age. This is the story of the church in our age. You will face evil at the hands of others. In Revelation 12, gives us the ultimate cause. Verse seven, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, that serpent of old, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. That explains that demon horde from Revelation 9. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, that scoundrels thrown out of heaven, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. The account of redemptive history given to us in Revelation 12 opened with a depiction of this regal woman, a crown of stars, right? Stars under her feet. This woman, this regal woman, about to give birth to a male child, and that male child destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Well, hovering over her like a perverted midwife is the devil, 
right? Waiting to devour the child as soon as he's born. That, that child referring to Jesus Christ. That child was caught up to God, caught up to his throne. And then what does the devil do? Instead of hovering over, waiting to devour the child, he turns upon the woman. He turns upon the woman. Now, if you've been following along on Sunday afternoons, we've carefully identified the woman as the people of God. She's representative of the people of God. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, who becomes his target, the people of God. Verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The offspring of the church are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The target of the devil is the people of God. Peter describes the devil as walking about like a roaring lion seeking prey seeking those whom he may devour. Revelation 12 describes his primary target as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you will face evil in this world. You are the targets of the wicked one and all of his minions. Yes, and all those, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they might face some persecution now and then. No. They will suffer persecution. How will you and I respond? Back in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. How are you going to respond? Think ahead, right? Repay no one evil for evil. We may not always know, we may not always understand why an enemy pursues us. You may not understand why the attacks come. It may seem irrational to us. And frankly, it often does. It may seem entirely unreasonable, but sin is not reasonable. Sin is not rational. David often prayed, when we looked at Psalm 35 together, David often prayed, there are those who hate me, David says, without cause, without cause, without cause, without cause. Treated him spitefully, without cause. And that's because sin is not rational. Sin is not reasonable. The attacks will come, and we may not always understand why. You often have absolutely no control over the attack. You face, in reality, an unseen enemy. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. These are supernatural occurrences. You face principalities and powers. There is a force at work behind what you see, behind those temporal occurrences. And the pressing issue that concerns the Apostle Paul here, the pressing issue that puts weight upon our witness as the church is how you and I are going to respond to it when it comes. Oftentimes, frankly, the only way that you can really learn how to respond to it when it comes is for it to come upon you, right? You learn those lessons by the school of hard knocks. You learn those lessons by going through it. And the Lord takes graciously, working it for your good, the Lord takes you through it to teach you those lessons. Praise God, we can take joy in that. And listen, if you, if you understand, here's the point of the Lord's words to his disciples in the upper room. If you understand the reality of it, it's going to happen. If you understand the ultimate cause of it, it's not this crazed, reviling lunatic in front of me, heaping you know, derision upon me. If you understand that you follow the footsteps of our Lord himself when you face it, the more equipped you are to respond as you should and endure it. 
as a worshiping witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. The more equipped you are to glorify God in it and through it for his sake. So what is Paul calling us to do then? In our text, Paul is calling us to cultivate some situational awareness. Cultivate some situational awareness. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, repay no one for evil. Now, to repay evil in response to evil is how the world would respond. That's how the world would respond, right? But if you are going to refuse to be conformed into this world, the patterns of this world, if you're gonna refuse, if you're gonna stop being pressed into the patterns of this evil age, verse two, and rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you cannot think as the world thinks and you cannot act as the world acts. You cannot respond as the world would respond. Paul expands on his initial statement with instruction then for how we should respond. That's how the world responds. Brothers and sisters, how do we respond? How do we respond when it comes? Now he does this, he gives us his instruction with an eye to our testimony. There is something more important at stake than your own personal comfort, than your own personal likes and dislikes, even in your own personal reputation, even more important than your own personal life, okay? There's something more important. He gives us this instruction with an eye to our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ before the eyes of this world. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. What does that look like? Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, don't mock him and deride him and revile him in his misery. That's how the world would respond. How are we to respond? Give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, he begins his instruction here in verse 17 with a series of exhortations. Repay no one for evil for evil, but instead have regard for good things in the sight of men. Live peaceably with all men. Don't avenge yourselves. Treat your enemies in light of God's own goodness toward you, right? Defer to God's wrath and direct your response in pursuit of an ultimate good that evil would be overcome by good. Now, first, verse 17 have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Literally, verse 17, think beforehand for good things. This is where situational awareness comes in. You gotta think ahead of time. I know from personal experience, when a bitter assault comes upon you, it's, you, it's hard to think about anything. <laughs> you just, you're in the fog of war. Your mind is a clouded mess. It can be exceedingly difficult. You need situational awareness. Think ahead. When this comes, and the Lord says it's going to, this is how I need to respond. This is how I need to respond. You gotta think about that ahead of time so you're not caught flat-footed, okay? Think beforehand, and Paul says in verse 17, think beforehand for good things, for good things. Take measures in preparation for good things, things that are good in the sight of all men situational awareness. Think ahead. Prepare yourself in advance for how you're going to respond to the evil that is done against you, for the injustice that is coming upon you. 
And think of how you're gonna uh, respond with that which may be considered as good in the sight of all men. Paul expresses a concern here for the testimony of the Christian. What is good, not for what is, what is good for your own self-interest, what is good in the sight of all men. The Christian bears witness to the love of Christ in the way that he responds to the evil done against him. Right? The Christian bears witness to the love of Jesus Christ himself when he responds to the evil done against him. Personal justice, personal vindication is not the first concern of Paul. Paul has in mind our testimony as witnesses to the Lord. It's natural to be a bit self-absorbed with our pain in the midst of difficulty. Right? It's reflexive even to seek our own interests sometimes when we've been wronged. But Paul is saying that you and I have more important concerns. Namely, that concern that Paul has in mind is the good of the person that has come against you. The good of the person who has wronged you. And the good for that person is your own testimony in your response to that trial, right? Your own testimony. And precisely because we are tempted often to respond from the flesh with selfish desires. We need to prepare our minds in advance to respond differently, to respond with good. When you claim to be a Christian, there is this expectation that you're not going to live like the world. When you claim to be a Christian and anyone around you who knows that you claim to be a Christian, there is oftentimes even an unspoken expectation on the part of the world, even on the part of your Christian brothers and sisters, there's an unspoken, sometimes a spoken expectation that you are going to live, act, think differently than this world. You should have that expectation. The world certainly, the world also has that expectation. Although they might gloat in your hypocrisy, if your hypocrisy is revealed, although they may gloat, the world thinks and believes that you should act and live differently. Paul is saying to us, beginning in verse 17, that we need to take that expectation into account and to be careful, to be careful when we're assaulted that we do not respond like a worldling would respond. It's very interesting to me in thinking about that point. It's often, in, in that very moment, it's often the hypocrisy of the world that is exposed. Their expectation exposes their own hypocrisy. They have that expectation, okay? But it exposes their own hypocrisy because they don't live like that, okay? So it's often in that, in that very moment that the hypocrisy of the world is also exposed. They have an expectation of you that goes unmet in their own life and your Godly response. Sometimes your very presence among them as a Christian is a living, breathing rebuke to them. And the conviction, sometimes it, certainly the conviction that your words, that the Lord can bring through your words, but sometimes the very conviction of your own life, your own presence among them is a living, breathing rebuke to them and can lead them to repentance. By your own life, by your own response to evil, you're testifying of them that their deeds are evil. Jesus Christ said the world hates him 
because he testifies of them that their deeds are evil. Sometimes by your own presence, by the very presence of a Christian person living a godly life, their very life is a rebuke to the wicked. That's often why the wicked respond with hostility. They'll respond to your goodness, you're considering in advance thinking and then responding with good, that which is good in the sight of all men, and they respond with hostility, further hostility. You can't control how they respond. You're not responsible for how they respond. You're responsible for how you respond. You respond with good in the sight of all men. They may respond with further hostility, with gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. My brothers and sisters, however they respond, it may be that conviction, that very conviction that leads them to repentance. And that's the goal, right? That's the ultimate priority, should be. They're brought to genuine repentance. Or, or, it may be the goodness of God, Romans chapter two. The goodness of God exhibited through your actions that leads them to repentance. You may respond with that which is good in the sight of all men, and they may, that may, as we're gonna find out in this text, may melt their heart. May melt their heart. On the other hand, on the other hand, it takes very little, very little, very little for your testimony to be undermined in the eyes of the world. You can almost say they're looking for it, right? They're looking for it. They'll dig it up under every bush, every rock, you know, whatever they can find against you. Even something that may not be a mark on your character, they'll twist it and make it one. It takes very little for your testimony to be undermined. We have to be very careful, very careful. When Paul speaks of good things in verse 17, he refers to that which is admirable. He refers to that which is highly commendable. And here in verse 17, it's admirable or highly commendable, even in the sight of the world. Certainly it's going to be highly commendable to God. But even sinners know, wow, that's, that's a good response, right? Literally, the word means beautiful. That's what the word means in verse 17. Things which are morally ethically beautiful in the sight of men. So again, there is more at stake than your own interests. There's more at stake than your own reputation, your own comfort, your own desires. Consider in advance, think ahead, make plans and preparations for how you will respond when someone comes to you with evil or does evil against you. You must act with utmost regard for your testimony in the sight of others. You must plan in advance to respond in a way that adorns the gospel for the Lord's sake and for the sake of the one who has offended you. Second, in consideration of this principle, repaying no one evil for evil, Paul says that we must act with a concern for peace. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, ultimately, the goal of our relationship with our enemies is to establish a basis for peace. That's ultimately our goal. You can have a can of gasoline in one hand and a can of water in the other. What, which one are you going to pour on the fire? We cannot control how our enemies may respond, but as for us, as much as depends upon us, let us respond with that which is beautiful as it concerns those who offend us and act with the aim of restoring peace Establish a, a basis on which peace may be attained. Now, once again, this is precisely what God has done for you and I through the gospel. 
This is how the Lord has responded to you and I through the gospel. This is a gospel-informed love for our enemies. Twice in this letter, Paul refers to God as the God of peace, multiple times in scripture, right? Chapter 15, verse 33, now may the, the God of peace be with you all, amen. Chapter 16, verse 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Hebrews 13, verse 20, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That's who God is. God is the God of peace. And in tremendous grace and mercy, he, God himself, provides a basis on which peace, on on which his enemies might be at peace with him, right? He establishes a basis for peace with his own enemies. And he does so through the death of his own son. If you've never turned from sin to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God. And because you are hopelessly unreconcilable, irreconcilable in and of yourself, God himself at great cost to himself has established a basis for peace. You are an enemy of God by wicked works and God himself has laid the foundation on which you may have peace with the God who made you. And he entreats you. He entreats you through the gospel to be at peace, to live at peace with him. He sends his prophets rising up early and sending them. It's a picture of God's zeal to to come to you with terms of peace. He sends his messengers petitioning his enemies with terms of peace. Where you have violated his law, he sent his son to fulfill it. Where you deserve his wrath, he sent his son to quench it in his own body on the tree as your substitute for every single cause of the enmity that lies between you and God. Every single enmity, act of enmity that you have hurled at his divine goodness, he has responded with an answer to that enmity in mercy and grace. And that is for the purpose that there may be peace. Short of violating his own law, all that he has done through the person and work of his own son, all that he is doing through the person and work of his own spirit in the hearts of men is in the interests of peace. You can certainly say, as much as depends upon God, he has sought to live peaceably with you. Turn from your sin is the proper response to that reality. All that he has done, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God says the righteousness of his son in fulfilling the law will be credited to you as a gift of his own grace. The sacrifice of his son applies to you for the forgiveness of all your sins. You will be declared righteous and justified in his sight. In Romans chapter five, verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have as a present tense Reality, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a glorious promise, blessing, isn't it? We're to love like that. We're to pursue peace because God pursued peace with us. We're gonna face enemies. Those enemies may be intractable. They may be as stubborn as you were when the Lord sought peace through the gospel with you. And yet, God himself has sought peace to live peaceably with us. And so Romans 12 then, verse 18, if it's possible, as much as depends upon you, live then peaceably with all men. Some enemies will not be won, 
Paul, with great sensitivity to that fact, Paul says, as much as depends upon you. There's a lot that doesn't depend on you, right? However, we're not to pay, repay his evil with evil. We're to consider our own testimony for Christ and responding with good. We're to establish a basis for peace, seeking to live peaceably with him if we can. In all of this, we bear God's own image, his own character written upon our heart. In all of that now, right, in all of that, what you and I cannot do, what we must not do, is take matters into our own hands and seek to avenge ourselves. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The third, and this is a blessing to us. In the matter of your own vindication, in the matter of justice, there's this desire that is woven into the fabric of our own hearts for justice. That's the way that God has made us. So in the matter of your own vindication, in the matter of, of true justice, you can leave vindication, you can leave justice, you can leave vengeance and wrath in the hands of God while you spend your time, your thought, your energy, your resources, pursuing aims that are commendable in his sight, pursuing those things which are good and beautiful, right? Pursuing a foundation for peace, right? You can leave vindication, you can leave justice, you can leave wrath, you can leave all of that in the hands of God and you can trust God with it, amen? Because he is trustworthy. God says, I will repay. That's in the hands of God. You do what Paul is calling you to do here in Romans chapter 12. You can trust him with justice. The natural response is to repay undeserved evil with evil that we think is deserved. This is to take to ourselves, and when we act that way, we are taking to ourselves a prerogative that only belongs to God. James says, there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and able to destroy. Who are you to judge another? You have no business doing that. That is a prerogative that is resigned for God. He alone dispenses grace. He alone dispenses mercy. He alone knows when grace and mercy must come to an end in judgment. He alone knows that. He knows the case far better than you. He knows all the inner workings of it. He alone knows the final end in his works of providence. He alone has the wisdom to direct all things to their decreed end. He alone knows the hearts and minds of men. He alone has decreed the ends of all those things. And he has said that vengeance, judgment, belongs to him. Vengeance is a divine prerogative. It's not a human prerogative. We must defer that judgment to him and we can trust him that he's going to act when it is right and just and good to do so. In support of this point, Paul once again refers to the Old Testament and he does so from Deuteronomy 32. Turn to Deuteronomy 32 with me. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 records the, the song of Moses, the song that celebrates the judgment of God upon his enemies. That's from this song that Paul derives a very important principle that he applies to our dealings with those who treat us unjustly. Drop down to verse 28. Speaking of his enemies, God says, they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. They need to think about what's going to come upon them, right? Consider your latter end. How could one chase a thousand, put 10,000 to flight, unless their rock 
had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. God is sovereign over all of these things. He is executing his sovereign decree in his works of divine providence. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, their fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. And God says in response to his enemies, verse 34, is this not laid up in store with me? Is this not my prerogative, God says, sealed up among my treasures? Verse 35, vengeance is mine. God says, this is my prerogative. Judgment is sealed up with me. I, vengeance is mine. I will repay, right? Recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. God's judgment does not slumber. He is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness. For in the day, of their, the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. He will judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Verse 36. For the Lord will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Well, if you believe in him, we can trust him with this in the times of those difficulties, when those difficulties come upon us. When he sees that their power is gone and there's no one remaining bond or free, he will say, where are their gods now? Where is the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices, drank the wine of their drink offering? Where is that false God who knows nothing, sees nothing, says nothing, does nothing, right? Is he sleeping? Did he go on a journey somewhere? <laughs> Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. Where is he, that God of yours? This is God himself mocking them. Now see, verse 39, I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and, and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword, my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. You can take it to the bank. You see, I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads and leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance. Now, God, not only vindicating himself, his own name, taking vengeance upon his enemies for his own sake. Rejoice, O Gentiles. God says, I will render vengeance um, to his adversaries. I will avenge the blood of his servants. He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. Concerning those who commit injustice and with regard to those who do evil, God does not overlook that offense. And we can trust that. We can leave judgment to him because we know that to be true. He does not forget. His judgment does not slumber. He assures us that justice will be done. All right? Therefore, back in Romans 12, we may not respond with vengeance of our own. Rather, we need to respond in a way that directs them toward the goodness of God that should lead them to repentance. We should direct them to God's patience in executing that, that justice, that judgment. Therefore, verse 20, therefore, don't respond with vengeance. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Don't repay evil for evil. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. 
With this statement, Paul quotes from Proverbs 25. And the admonition in the text is clear, um, but the, the proverb ends, verse 22 in Proverbs 25 there, the proverb ends with this, this enigmatic statement, in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That picture uh, is drawn from, that language drawn from the picture of a crucible. You think about a crucible, uh, you put a metal in a crucible to melt the metal. That's a good description of the wicked's heart. Uh, often a, a heart of someone who has been offended, harder to win than a fortified city. Right? That piece of metal now that's in their chest. <laughs> well, think of taking a piece of metal and putting it in a crucible. And then what you do with a crucible is you pack coals around the crucible to build up the heat inside the, the crucible. You pack coals in on top, on top of the lid and packed coals in on top and around the crucible increases the heat in the crucible and that heat melts the metal. Paul has in mind the good that we do, those beautiful things that we seek to do, beautiful things in the sight of all men, heaped upon the head of our enemy with the aim of melting his heart. That those good things heaped upon his head with the aim of melting his heart. Romans chapter two, verse four, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long suffering, not knowing that all of that goodness heaped upon him should lead him to repentance. What is the aim? What is God's aim behind his goodness to undeserving sinners? Why does the rain fall on the unjust? Right? Why, does it, why does he place food on the table of the unjust? Why does he put breath in the lungs of the unjust? Why, why does he not strike us with lightning the first sin that we commit? What is the aim behind the goodness of God. It's that it's to heap coals of fire upon our head to melt the stony heart of the sinner that by his goodness, he might melt the heart of that one and lead them to peace with himself. If they refuse that gracious offering in the gospel, it's going to be called against them in the time of judgment. God's purpose in his patience, his long suffering. The patience of our God is salvation. God's purpose behind his patience, his long suffering is salvation. The story, um, if I have this correct, uh, the name Methuselah. Methuselah was the oldest person who lived in the Bible. I remember correctly, I think Methuselah lived 969 years. Old, old guy, like older than, older than me and Tom, right? Older, like old. <laughs> and... Um, Methuselah, Methuselah died at that ripe old age right before the flood came. So Methuselah's life then, life, his life becomes a picture of God's patience during this age, right? God's patience before there will come an end to his patience and judgment falls. But that life, 900, I think 69 years, that length of life a display, if you will, a depiction of God's patience before judgment, okay? God is patience. What is the aim of that patience? What is the, the aim of all that goodness? It's to draw men to repentance. Therefore, therefore, verse 21, back in Romans 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a warning in verse 21 for you and I. This is a warning. There is a danger in responding to evil that we ourselves may be overcome with evil. 
You have to be careful in the way that you respond to people who are in sin. There is a danger that you may be overcome with sin. Now, we, we tend to, like we may do with other warnings in the Bible, treat them more lightly, far more lightly than we should, because we don't see the tremendous seriousness of that warning. Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. You do good. You make sure that your conduct, the way that you think, act, and speak is in line with or adhering to, uncompromisingly, to moral principles established in God's law. Do not sin and do not tolerate sin. Stand for righteousness and do good. While you're doing good, do not be overcome with evil. There is a danger that in interacting with the evil, or there is a danger in our own hearts and minds as we in the flesh respond to evil, there is a danger that we may be overcome by evil. Heed the warning. If you respond to evil with evil, you may be overcome. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 is an example of that. The author says, peace, pursue peace with all people, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You notice the two together. Pursue peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. You cannot pursue peace by compromising with holiness, right? Pursue peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. That evil root has destroyed, destroyed many so-called godly men. If, you're think, if you think that you're strong enough to withstand that, you are thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be careful, Paul says, be careful. Do not be overcome by evil. Rather, overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, repay no one evil for evil. We've been through trials that have, I hope, taught us these lessons. I've learned a lot from those trials. I've learned a lot from this text. Right? We were, we're being conformed to the image of the Son. We're being sanctified. And it's those lessons that become so valuable now in living our lives together as a, as a group of Christian brothers and sisters, right? It's, uh, we've got to learn these. We've got to think ahead. We've got to plan. Do better next time, right? You, you face those trials. You don't always respond the way that you want to. We've got to think through these things and apply the text. Repay no, no one evil for evil. Think in advance. Think in advance how you respond. Respond in a way that adorns the gospel. It will come. It will come. God himself has established a basis on which you may live peaceably with him, so as much as depends upon you, you establish a basis on which you may live peaceably with all men. Do not compromise his word. Trust the Lord with justice and with mercy. As for you, seek to melt their heart with good. Being careful, being very careful that in your interactions with them or in your response to them, that you yourself may not be overcome by evil. Rather, that you may overcome evil with good. And may God help us as we strive to love those who have wronged us. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful instruction from Romans chapter 12. It has been a joy uh, to walk through this chapter, a tremendous blessing uh, to your church, to your people, to me personally, Lord. I'm very grateful. Thank you for the lessons you've taught us. I'm really grateful, Lord, and I'm amazed at how you dovetail the lessons that you're teaching us with our 
own practical experience. (laughs) The things that we go through and the texts of scripture that you're taking us through masterfully orchestrated together in your work of divine providence that we might learn these lessons and worship you rightly, serve you rightly, persevere and endure to the end, that you might conform us into the image of your son, all of those things. You are masterful and gracious and merciful to us and all of that. It's amazing to us and we're grateful to you for it. Be with us now as we seek to apply it. Help us to learn these lessons and not forget them. Help us to honor you in the way that the ways that we apply this text and help us to live to the glory of, of your name for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we endure to the end as testimonies of your preserving power at work among us. And may we be trophies of your grace in eternity, praising him for the great deliverance that he has delivered us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.